The opinions and views expressed in this program do not reflect those of KUCI, its management, or the UC Board of Regents. To find out more about this talk show or other talk shows broadcasting on KUCI, log on to our website at KUCI.org or check out the latest program guide. You're listening to KUCI 88.9 FM in Irvine and KUCI.org on the web. Welcome to Privacy Piracy. I'm Lloyd. I'm the show's engineer, and your host is Mari Frank. Mari's a local attorney and certified information privacy professional. She's the author of several books, including Safeguard Your Identity, From Victim to Victor, and The Complete Idiot's Guide to Recovering from Identity Theft. She's testified many times in Congress and the California Legislature on privacy and identity theft issues. And you may have seen her on Dateline, 48 Hours, CNN, NBC, ABC, O'Reilly Factor, and many other shows, including her own 90-minute PBS television special, Protecting Yourself in the Information Age. To learn more about this radio show and our great guests, please visit KUCI.org slash privacypiracy. Hey, Mari, what's our show about today? Well, our show is about the prosecution of identity thieves and other fraudsters. And we have a guest today who I met recently Actually, we met by phone, and we both did our own little dog and pony show on a different radio show where we were both being interviewed, and he was so much fun and so knowledgeable that I begged him to come on our show, and I want to tell you about our wonderful guest today. Today, we're going to be interviewing Conrad Del Rosario. He has been a prosecutor for 17 years, and he is in beautiful San Francisco. And while he's in the San Francisco DA's office, he's been assigned to several units, including domestic violence, sexual assaults, and narcotics. But for the last five years, he's been exclusively prosecuting high-technology crimes. Now, this includes assisting law enforcement with the investigation, all the way to presenting the case to juries. These are crimes where high-technology is either the target of the crime or the means used to committing crimes. And this is especially a terrible situation when you have child exploitation crimes, but that one is excluded. So it's everything but. Now, these crimes that he prosecutes includes identity theft, credit card fraud, digital privacy, and computer network intrusions. And we hear about those all the time. He works jointly with local and federal agencies, including uh, San Francisco Police Department, the U.S. Postal Inspection Service, and the Secret Service in the investigation and prosecution of identity theft cases. Right now, he's currently assigned to the Rapid Enforcement Allied Computer Team, and I guess the acronym is REACT Task Force. Now, this is a state-funded agency consisting of local and federal law enforcement agencies investigating high-technology crimes, which are just increasing you know, epidemically. He's also a member of the High Technology Crimes Investigators Association. He conducts training and presentations for law enforcement in the investigation and the prosecution of identity theft and high technology crimes. He recently tried a very interesting case in San Francisco um, against the network administrator, Terry Childs. And this guy refused to provide the passwords to the city's network system, which resulted in locking out the city from its own network. The case took six months to try in front of a jury and resulted in a conviction in a four-year prison sentence. So we have a star prosecutor with us and a nice guy, 
lots of fun, and I am just so thrilled that Conrad Del Rosario is joining us. You can learn more about him and the uh, D- San Francisco District Attorney's Office at www.sddistrict. That's all the way from up north. You're very welcome, and it's um, I, I thank you for letting me be on the program. Oh, well, we're thrilled. This is fun. So it it must be really something to be in, you know, prosecuting all these bad guys. So tell us, from a thief's perspective, since you've obviously talked to many of them, why do identity theft crimes have their advantages for these guys? You know, it's an interesting point that you actually say that I, I actually have a chance to talk to them because you're actually very correct in that. And people don't usually associate prosecutors with being able to talk to um Defendants, because defendants have a Fifth Amendment right not to incriminate them, and that includes not talking to law enforcement. The DA's office, um, prosecutors are often considered or are considered to be law enforcement. So unlike you know your classic um, law and order where you see the prosecutors talking to the um, defendants, typically that rarely, if ever, happens. But in identity theft cases, there is actually an advantage in talking to defendants. So oftentimes... Um, during the course of the prosecution as part of um, the disposition or the settlement of the case or what eventually happens is one of the things that we try to do is to learn about how these identity thieves are committing their crimes, how they're gathering information, um, what they're able to do in order to use people's information. And all of that is very helpful information for us to take back to the public say this is what you need to do to protect yourself because this is a vulnerability that we are seeing becoming more common amongst what identity thieves are doing. So to to answer your original question. But let me stop you on that because that's important. So basically you get to talk to them during the plea bargaining, right? Is that when you when you get to find out all this juicy stuff or what? Yeah. So like one of the things, one of the creative ways of of settling a case, obviously you want to get to the point where you're holding the suspect accountable for what they do. But one of the other additional um, um, terms that you may want to add in there is Provide us some information of how you're receiving this information. Provide us some detailed description of how you're gathering this, what you're doing to get it, um, how you're, what techniques you're using in order to carry out um, the crimes. And, you know, obviously we have reports, police reports that we know and, and, and facts as to what happened. They will give us a bigger picture of of how they came to that point of committing that actual crime. So, for example, they may tell us, this is how we got the information. This is who we got it from. This is where we got it from. Once we got this information, this is what we were able to do with it. And this is how you found us at the store using someone else's credit card. So that gives us basically intel or intelligence for law enforcement to take back to um, understanding this is is how they're operating. And this is what you need to do to not only um, develop an expertise in um, in arresting these suspects, but it's also useful for consumers and businesses in protecting themselves. So we could, this is one of the few areas that I have actually seen being creative in um, uh, settling, settling a case can be advantageous in learning how they do it. It's, it's also similar in like some, some other types of crimes, for example, like in gang crimes, where you want intelligence on how gang members are working and, and, and the intricacies of and the hierarchies of a gang. Um, similarly, you want to learn that same type of intel because identity theft is such a complex 
type of crime. It can be, it, it's, although it's very simple in its, in its concept, the execution is extremely complex because where you get the information, how you use that information, all of that can, um, there's no set pattern on how to commit the crime. And so it changes. The technology, the... Um, uh, the tricks, the, the tricks the of the trade. Of the trade exactly. <laughs> that can change within a month easily. It can change within weeks um, depending on how um, successful or lucrative an exploit or vulnerability could be. And, and when I mean exploit or vulnerability, it could be something as simple as going into a, a particular hotel and in that hotel, they don't check for IDs. That one particular chain of hotels, they don't check for IDs. Boom, they get hit suddenly with more identity theft crime because it becomes known that that hotel doesn't check IDs. It could be something as simple as that. That's what I mean by an exploit or a vulnerability. And that that's something that just gets – you really only start to learn it um, as you start communicating and, and learning from the suspects themselves. And I know you and I were talking about some of the technology that they use and some of the – like the exploit, you talked also with me on that show about how they have this, um, they exploited the vulnerability at gas stations. Yeah, you know, let me let me talk about two exploits that yeah. I, think maybe, I think maybe your listeners might even be fascinated to even know existed. Yes. The, the first exploit that I that I, I came across was, was probably one of the first cases I prosecuted in, in identity theft. And, and what we had was we had a case where um, a suspect had um, some iPhone, not some iPhone, some iPods, and which incidentally could be used as hard drives. So he was storing information on the iPods. These were databases. These were uh, documents um, belonging to people, just individuals, mm-hmm. and it seemed to contain a lot of personal information of these people. Um, we did some computer forensics, not on not only on just the iPods, but on a series of other um, computers that he had, and we just found databases and documents of other people's information. And it got to the point where we had like pages, they could be like 20, 30 documents that could be like 20, 30 pages that just had single spaced lines of people's personal information, addresses, phone numbers, credit card numbers, et cetera. (laughs) We had no idea where this came from. For the longest time, we had no idea where this information came from. It didn't look like a database breach because he also had other pieces of information that were just like letters that were written by by people. for example, one letter, one letter was a letter from a lady who was communicating with um, her caterer for her wedding reception. Mm. But the document that he had in his possession was an unsigned letter. When we communicated with the victim, she said, yeah, that was a letter that I mailed off, but the letter that I mailed off, I signed off at the bottom. Mm. The one that you have is an unsigned version. That one was in my computer. That one hasn't left my computer. Hmm. So we had no idea where this individual, um, we had no idea where this individual got this information. This was not, and this was just one out of thousands of documents that was in his, that was in his hard drive. Wow. One of the interesting, um, interesting notes about this was, um, and I had a great investigator from San Francisco Police Department that was working this case. Um, he was actually the head of the fraud unit at the time, the lieutenant. And in one of the lists of information were two interesting people, um, Nancy Pelosi, <laughs> and the FBI spokesperson for for the regional FBI office. Wow! So we got information. We we contacted them. We're like, yeah, well, I don't know how that person got our information. We're just like, okay, this was just too bizarre. Yeah. So we eventually was able. We were eventually on the morning of jury selection settled the case for five years state prison. Um, 
one of the terms, however, I said before we make that offer is I want to know exactly how you got this information. Right, right. Because it was just too much of a quandary. And it was my first case, and this was my first case that I really wanted to understand how, the, how expansive the technology was. Right. So it was very interesting. What we did was we actually had the San Francisco Police Department computer forensic room set up a computer that was stripped of any uh, SFTD connections. It was only a computer that had direct access to the Internet. So there was no databases from the police department that was connected. We wanted it to obviously be clean so that he wouldn't have the ability of accessing any other databases. Right, right. He demonstrated in front, I would say we had, uh, we had close to 15, 10 to 15 officers in a room, and we watched him work his magic. <laughs> and what he did was he basically was utilizing peer-to-peer software. And it was something ah. new to me, something new to him. Actually, every officer in the room did not even know that this, how this existed. And what, what this was, peer-to-peer software is when you have the ability from your computer to down. well, what it is, it's a software program. There's many types of software programs. But it connects your computer to another person's computer anywhere on the web. And where peer-to-peer software originated was, you remember back in the uh, in the, two, the around 2000, I might have been late 1990s, um, early 2000, when Napster right. was, was very music big. Sharing, and what Napster yeah. did was Napster collected all the music that everyone loved, loaded it onto its servers, onto its own um, own computers, and people would log on to Napster and and download the music from the Napster servers from the right. Napster company. Right. And, and they that, would share also their own music with right, others. Right, yeah. and this was all free, and that's yeah. when the music industry and the recording industry came in and said, okay, that's a copyright, that's a copyright violation because you're basically giving out our, our music for free. Right. So what they did was they ended up shutting down all the Napster servers. So technology then took another step. They said, okay, we're not going to create a centralized server, a centralized database where we're going to store all the music, what we're going to do is we're going to sell you programs that's going to, that's going to permit your computer to talk to the computer down the street or on the other side of the world. And that way, you guys, if you want to, you can share files with each other. And, and a no lot of longer... students were doing that, sharing you know, student information. I mean, that was huge on the campuses, too. Exactly. Not only music, but also sharing, uh, you know, like term papers. <laughs> exactly, exactly. Yeah. So what what we did was so what was happening now there was now these programs that were that were freeware. You could download it in your computer. Once you load it on your computer, you designate certain files in your computer that are that can be viewed on the internet. Right. Everybody that downloaded this particular program can now see other people that have that program also installed and whatever folders that they permitted to be viewed on the Internet. Now, the trick was, and the problem was, and this is what he pointed out to us, was people sometimes don't know which folders are being viewed on the Internet. And that was the key. And so I went ahead after the demonstration. I'll describe a little bit about the demonstration in a second. Did he download onto your computer the software? Is that what he did? He downloaded the software? He downloads it to his computer, and now he can communicate to anybody in this community of people that have downloaded the software onto their computers. Okay. So now you've got this network of computers that you're able to communicate with for everybody that, you know, they want to share 
documents or music or whatever or, or a video clip or something, you can go and look, do a search, and, and the program will search every computer that has these type of programs loaded will look for whatever search you're, you've put in for the, um, um, the search engine for that particular, um, for that particular document or, or video. So people who had the software would maybe open up their whole computer rather than just designate certain files so that the person who is the, the fraudster will go in and look at every file, like maybe even, um, you know, Tax returns. Exactly. And, and so I went ahead and I tried it because that's one of the things you got to do. You have to learn what they're doing. You right. got to kind of go through the activity too so that you know what the pitfalls are. And I downloaded one of the programs. This was back in 2000 and, uh, 2006, 2007 that I was actually playing with this particular program. And I learned that just by the installation of this, a lot of the default values. Right. Are in, other open. Words, yeah. in other words, without changing any of the specific um, preset uh, folders and things like that, uh, they automatically opened up many of the folders that sit in your hard drive, like the My Documents folders, which right. is basically everything that you store, that you write, or anything like that you may store. It opened those documents up, and it gave you no warning that your My Documents folder was something that might be um, containing very valuable information or personal information that you don't want out on the network. Right. And here's an interesting twist. There was a little click. There was a little box, I should say, that if you click it, 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 it enabled this function. And this one function was this program will automatically start when you turn on your computer. Oh, and what we were discovering was teenagers who liked these programs were getting on family computers. Uh-huh. And so the computer would automatically start up. And the parents who's going, I'm going to write a write my letter, write a letter to Visa regarding a particular issue I have, didn't realize that their document was being saved and was being viewed on the internet at that time. Right. So what was happening? And and I mean, just to give you the reach of what I was talking about, I had as one of my victims that I actually called and was able to talk to him. I had as one of my victim a captain in the U.S. Army who was stationed on the demilitarized zone in Korea. Wow. And he had no idea how, how a particular document was compromised, and now we learned it. And so when this suspect or when this defendant was showing, showing us how he was doing it, it was fascinating because he was smart. And this yeah. is one of the things about these people that they're smart is he was going, you know, you don't search things like, you know, um, Miles Series or, or whichever artist I want to listen to. I'm, my keyword search is going to be things like Visa, Wells Fargo Bank, um, social security returns, number, social security <laughs> number, visa, things like that. Any right. document that is on the World Wide Web via this peer-to-peer -peer software program right. will now be visible to my search engine. And he was even taking it a step further. He was doing things like um, file extensions. So if you ever look at a computer, if you ever open up a Word document and you save it and you look at that document in its true form, it'll be the title of the document, dot .doc. DOC stands for Microsoft Word document. Right. Any document or any type of file that is saved will have an extension, and that extension identifies what kind of program it belongs to. Right. So he was taking it a step further, and he was saying, I would even do a search for .xls, which right. is an extension for Excel spreadsheets. Right, which is uh, going to have all sorts of financial information. And what he was finding was at 3 o'clock in the morning when he was up doing this, 
he was getting databases from companies on the other side of the world. Oh, my God. That were up because that was their business hours. And secretaries were loading this up, loading these peer-to-peer softwares, and not realizing that part of their company's database was being open to the Internet. And so he would do a dot .tax, which is a extension for TurboTax. So anybody, <sighs> any any home <laughs> residents that was doing their own Turbo ta- that was doing their own right. taxes through TurboTax and was saving those documents, didn't realize. And if that document was um, on a computer where a peer-to-peer software program was installed and inadvertently being exposed to the internet, he was capturing that. Wow. He was capturing. He was brilliant. I mean, he was. He, I learned so much from him. I said, this How is, old was this he? Is worth a lot of years yeah. and time. But it was something that we were learning. He was going, a few people learned this. I learned this from a friend, which kind of tells me that there's, it, it's, it's out in the world. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. And so that was, that was a breach that we did not realize. It was a very simple technique. But it was a technique that he had thousands of documents in his database. It, it was interesting because when I was talking to his defense lawyer, and he was trying to – he was telling me what the defense was going to be in the case. We were discussing defenses in this case. His defense in this case was he was downloading so much information that he didn't know exactly <laughs> all the information and all the personal information that he had. So he didn't have the intent to use it for fraud <laughs> because he had so much, he didn't know what he had. <laughs> you know, and I'm like, I'm, I, think he, I think he saw the clarity of his ways, yes. you know, when we were selecting a jury. But it was interesting because he obviously had a lot of information. Like I said, Nancy Pelosi, the FBI spokesperson, you know, we mm-hmm. had a captain in Korea. Um, it was just a lot of information. And so that's the, that was one of the ways that I actually saw the benefit of being able to talk to these people. When you've got a case and yes. you've, got a, you've got information and they have information that you're not sure how they got it, um, and it just seems not – it just seems something's wrong with this picture. That's where you really have to take a te- step further and find creative ways because the, the value of us being able to then communicate to the public and, and communicate to um, you know, these software programs to say, this is creating a risk. You need to put your default values at a different level or you need to put warnings there so that people understand what they're doing with these default selections when, you, when they install the program. That's valuable information that, that can be worth its time and money um, back to the consumer and to the businesses. Absolutely. It's funny that you talk about that because I actually testified in Congress about that time, and they had a whole thing about peer-to-peer file sharing and identity theft. And we had the Secret Service there, and we had everybody talking about this. And it's just amazing. It was about that same time that I was in Washington talking about the same thing. And this is, I think, so important because what you're talking about is these companies, without even realizing it, are facilitating this crime because they put the default as open rather than closed. And like you said, by you getting this information, you could say, hey, companies, you need to have the default as closed and then let people open up one file at a time and have them understand the ramifications of it with, yes, I accept this. I understand this. I understand what I'm doing. So, um, no, it's great. And I think, you know, the other thing is when you have people who are committing white collar crime, all right, it's not like rape or murder. So they're not going to get as many years usually, right? Right. So you might as well learn as much as you can and do these plea bargains. There's Absolutely. And, you know, you know, you're absolutely right on that issue is when you're dealing with a white-collar crime, and we're up against judges that are, that are hearing 
hearing cases of, of, of major sexual assault crimes, major gang-type crimes, major homicides, things of that nature, and you come in there with, this is what they lost. It's really our job as prosecutors to really educate the bench. It's to not just educate the bench, but educate the community of lawyers that this is a sophisticated crime that we will take very seriously. And just to tell you how sophisticated it is, look, do you know what a peer-to-peer -peer software is? And when they say no, and they don't realize what it is, they start realizing, you know what, this can actually happen to me. Yes. And then it hits home, and that's when the consciousness actually starts changing. So when we go in there, you know, historically, when someone comes in with an identity theft case, um, prior to the, you know, prior to really these technologies taking off, it was a very simple type case. Person came in and used the name, and yeah, he stole his identity. Now we're in this per we're in this era where it's a it's not just one person doing it; it's a mass harvesting of people's personal information. And any and you one have of us, thousands of victims yeah, now. And yeah. Any one of us in court can be a victim, and many of us have been yes. a victim in the court system. And how they do it, the techniques that they're doing, the degree of sophistication that they're doing it, does not show that this is a crime of opportunity. This is a crime that is. That, that takes a lot of intelligence and sophistication to actually commit. Yes. It's not just the harvesting of the information, but once you take that information, what you do with it, how you execute it, it all plays into a degree of sophistication. So when someone comes in and says, well, the person's on drugs, yeah, the person, I'm sure, has an intent to use it for the pur purpose of buying drugs. But the thing that they do, you and I can't even come up with it. A lot of these things that are done are so sophisticated that we're, they're at a level that we're still trying to keep pace with understanding how they do it. And that is what really creates a higher degree of um, response when we bring these cases to court. They judges take notice of it because they don't want to be the ones to say, I let this guy go, and boom, the next thing you know, he comes back with more thousands of dollars that he stole and on other people's names. Right. And to let them really know the impact on the victims. You know, you think, oh, well, they stole somebody, they got into somebody's computer, but what does it really mean to the victim when you have to have these victim impact statements so that the judge understands how horrible this really is and how it could really happen to him or her. You know, and it's, it's interesting because in my, in my years of doing this, I have yet to find a sympathetic judge or a sympathetic defense lawyer yeah. who thinks that, oh, this was just, you know, uh, this was just a, a moment of mental relapse that he committed this crime. I have really yet to find people who are sympathetic. And that's why, ah. that's why a lot of these credit monitoring companies and these, you know, uh, these, these people that check your credit so that you don't have to, that's why they make a lot of money is because a lot of people out there are beginning to realize it's their money that can be, that can be at risk and they don't like it. And I'm finding that same attitude in the court system where a lot of judges and a lot, even a lot of defense lawyers find it very difficult to defend these people because their actions are inexcusable. Yes. And a lot of them are becoming victims or their family members are becoming victims. I can't tell you how many judges have contacted me for help. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. And, and it can happen to you or it can happen to me. And you know, we both have our friend Jerry Coleman, who is up in your office, who, who's been the victim of identity theft Absolutely. himself and me too. So if it can happen to us, it can happen to anybody. And what's really scary is a lot of these, a lot of these, you know, a lot of the lawyers, a lot of the judges are older. I mean, I'm not going to say that I'm a young, you know, youngling or anything, but I'm saying that they grew up in an era when technology and computers weren't around, when right. typing a document meant doing it on a typewriter. Right. And they are absolutely fascinated, as well as at the same time appalled, by what can be done without their consent. 
They don't have a clue until right. you explain it to them and show them. That's exactly it. And then once you do that, then you can push harder for the higher sentences. So when you're ask, when you've got a when you have an individual that that has a degree of sophistication, you have to push hard for those prison sentences so that you can create a higher so you can create a climate in the justice system that these cases will be taken seriously and that they will be dealt with harshly and that it sends a message back to their other cohorts. Hey, they're not fooling around. Right. If we get caught, they may go really hard on this. But I really like the idea of taking those who are really brilliant, who are willing to do a plea bargain, but really tell everything that they know. And a lot of them want to. You, yeah, because you know, they're kind of proud you know, of themselves, like, aren't they? Right. You, you, you kind of <laughs> you, you interviewed uh, uh, Kevin Mignick, right? Yes. Yeah, I mean, some of them are very proud of what they've been able to accomplish and how they've been able to get away with it. These aren't people that, you know, these are these are people that, that it takes a little bit of effort to do what they're doing. It takes some effort and some intelligence to do what they're doing. And sometimes a lot of intelligence. I mean, when I read Kevin Mitnick's book, and by the way, if, if you're listening and you haven't heard him, you can listen to our archived interview about Kevin Metnick. He was a big FBI hacker, and he really didn't do it for the money. He did it for the fun. Right. And, you know, he has the art of intrusion and the art of detection. And, and uh, you know, he has books that tell about how they do everything from social engineering to all of the technology. I mean, exactly. he tells about it, and now he's actually turned to the good guy. I mean, after serving in prison and not being able to touch a uh, computer for a while— now he does training for law enforcement and training for IT people on how to avoid these kinds of things. Right. So sometimes, sometimes you know, sometimes, uh, sometimes these people aren't willing to give information, but that's something you can always throw out there. And you obviously never go below what you as a prosecutor feel you need to hold them accountable for the crime. Right. This is just added icing to a cake if they're willing to do it. And so I always make sure that I get what I that I that I look at what, it, what I look at this case for what it's worth and what I think is necessary to hold them accountable. Send a message out to the bench, to the legal community, to these thieves. Right. Once I've reached that point, then I will say, on top of that, this is what I want. Right. Um, and and just make sure that you don't hold these people accountable. And also, the impact on that is important because a lot of these a lot of these identity thieves are working by crews or cells, or oh, they work yeah. they work not alone. They work by people that are giving them the information, or by people that are giving them the fake credit cards and the fake driver's licenses. So there's a huge hierarchy or a huge structure that sits above them that you also want to send that message to as well. That that they send these runners out to the different stores to make purchases on other people's credit cards. That person got busted. That person got arrested. Oh, my gosh, they're going to treat him lightly. He just get probation. Boom, he's getting prison, and they're looking, okay, activity now has to stop. Yes. And we've actually seen that. I've actually prosecuted a case where the U.S. Postal Services was working um, a network um, uh, a network of, of thieves, and it was a particular scam that was being um, – it was being implemented against banks, and we took two of the two of the more prolific uh, runners, and I call them runners because they're the ones who are going into the banks and and getting caught. Once we caught those runners and we gave them prison sentences, that activity stopped. Yes. So it was it wasn't like it wasn't like um, okay, well I just got two runners were knocked out. I'll just there's always the next person in line who wants to go in. No, they stop and now they move on to another type of scheme. Right. So that's the message you got to do, and you just got to keep trying to. You got to keep hammering at it, and try to find out what the next scheme is going to be, and try to find and 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 um, basically debilitate that. No, you at the same time you always want to try to also move up the uh, food chain to get the higher people up. 
But I think it's really tough because you have these companies that aren't doing like, you know, that are making people vulnerable because they're they're not really looking at the privacy infrastructure or building into the architecture of their technology protections. So, you know, security protections and privacy protections. Absolutely. So there's always going to be these vulnerabilities with this technology and these people are smart. So it's like you're always behind the eight ball. Yeah, you know, I mean, that's that's a that's a that's a that's a good point, and it and it's for example what we talked about earlier, where um, one of the current trends that we're seeing nowadays is when you pull up to a gas station, they have those they have those gas stations where you pay your credit card directly on the island where the the gas pumps are, and we're finding that um, some of the newer advanced techniques is they those those gas pumps. Um, I don't know, for those machines that actually take the credit cards, they're not that secure. Right. They're they're held in basically by a, a key, um, by far, something that could easily be tampered with and broken into. And what the smartest thieves are able to do is they're able to um, open that up, obviously when the attendants aren't looking, and attach to the back of it devices that can capture any credit card or debit card, and they prefer to go to the ones with the debit cards because they now have access to your cash, um, install devices that can capture the um, credit card information, the debit card information, as well as the PIN number that yes. you're punching in. They go back at a later time, retrieve it, close the door. No one ever knows that their information was compromised because there was nothing on the front of the machine that showed them that there was anything suspicious. and Next thing you know, their credit cards or their debit cards and their accounts are being are being um, depleted. Yes, and that's a really dangerous thing because when they built these things, they're not thinking someone's going to be able to break into this physical structure and take this information. They're not thinking that creatively. Unlike, unlike for example, a bank, a bank's ATM machine. Although they have had similar type of um, devices, those devices weren't weren't where you can open up the back panel because those ATM machines are designed to be um, more physically secured because they're obviously securing dollar, cash, dollars. Right, they don't right. want someone just going in and unlocking it and then pulling out thousands of dollars in cash. So they're built much more sturdily for those purposes. Fraudsters just figure out a different way to get information from an ATM machine. But when it comes to those gas station islands where you pay at the island, it's a different story. Those machines can very easily be tampered with, broken into, something can be attached behind the panel, and the consumers never even know that their their data was being captured. And, and I think that's so important, so that these companies who are creating these wonderful devices, which, you know, I mean, obviously they provide convenience. You don't have to walk inside to pay. But at the same time, they really need to build into the whole plan of of the architecture of whatever device they're doing or whatever software they're creating or whatever hardware they're creating or mobile devices, they have to really, at the very inception, think about security and privacy, and they're not doing that. And I think that's what gives you guys so much work to do to try and catch up. It's crazy. Yeah, exactly. And that's the thing, you know, that's a very key phrase that you have is when these companies are providing convenience to the consumer, that should be the flag for the consumer to say, okay, what is it that I need to be concerned about that I'm giving them that I'm getting convenience for? Because that's usually going to be where the point of compromise is. And it's going to be until somebody actually exploits that is when they discover, huh, maybe this convenience needs to be protected a little bit more. But when they do the initial convenience, 
generally that's where they're not recognizing the creative ways that these fraudsters are able to break into it. Right. And, you know, I, I just don't ever like to blame the victim because truly those consumers like you and I, until we know what they're really doing, it's like, wow, we don't have necessarily that technology mind. And exactly. so we don't even know what those vulnerabilities are. And how would we know? I mean, we're, we're going into a gas station. We trust it. That it's going to be safe, that we're going to be able to use it, that this convenience is also going to be protecting us. And I think you and I had talked on that other radio show about, if you're listening, by the way, and we've said this many times, get rid of your debit card. Only use a credit card at any of those machines anywhere. And don't even have a debit card. You can have an ATM card that you have to use your PIN with. Only use that at at an ATM machine by your bank. Really be smart because obviously we're not being protected. Obviously, and those debit cards are, are are gold. Once they have once they have their um, once they have your credit card, your debit card information, as well as your PIN number, that's gold to them because they don't have the same protection restrictions as your your credit cards do when they're processing um, a charge. So, if you've got a ten thousand dollar, if you've got a ten thousand dollar amount in your checking account, it can be gone. In a it heartbeat. can be gone exactly on a credit card. They may a credit card company is going to go. Wait a minute. Wait a minute. This person was just buying McDonald's um, meals. You know, two hours ago, in the last ten dollars, last ten days, he's only spent a hundred dollars on his credit card, and all of a sudden, he's buying a motorhome. Wait a minute! Yeah, you know, they're going to question that transaction. That. They're going to question that transaction. You're not going to have that protection when you're using your debit card. Your, right. your money is just straight out the bank. And and even if you don't have the money, it's going to go into your overdraft, or you're going to get charged for going over what you had in your account. Absolutely. But at least the good news is, if you use your credit card, you're going to be protected so that. You're never going to have to pay a penny for the fraud, and you see the account um, invoice before you even pay it. So one, you know, with a debit card, the money is siphoned out. It's an electronic check. It's just gone. With your credit card, obviously, you get a statement first, and then you decide whether it's fraudulent or not, and you pay it if it's true or not. And then you're never going to be held responsible if you, as long as you tell them within 60 days, hey, this is fraudulent. I want to introduce you again, Conrad, because people are driving by and they're probably thinking, who is this exciting, wonderful guy that we're talking to? Who the heck is he? And I want to tell you that if you have been listening to Conrad Del Rosario, who is a prosecutor for the last 17 years in San Francisco, and the last five years, he's really devoted himself to all sorts of technology crimes, including identity theft. And he is just really wonderful. You can learn more about him at our website at KUCI.org slash Privacy Piracy, where you can see his picture and his bio. And you can even link to the San Francisco uh, District Attorney's Office and find out more about all the great work that he is doing and his whole District Attorney's Office is doing. Let me ask you, let's let's get back to that first question, which was, okay, so it looks like it's it's really easy and you don't get caught too often. Is that one of the reasons why an identity thief thinks it's a it's a good job to do or what yeah, do you think? And, you know, you compare that with you know, I kinda classify them in a in a in a kind of like the old school news new school. And the old school is the way you want money, the way you get money in committing crimes the old school way could be violent. A robbery, a bank, even a bank robbery. I think what the average um, yield on a on a bank robbery is maybe three to five thousand dollars because the banks have ingo- uh, uh, put in safeguards where they don't have you know ready cash um, available. Um, but the average the average on that kind of amount of money is not that high. And you consider in a bank robbery, you're looking at situations where 
You may have victims resisting you, bank employees resisting you. You may have the police that will be called on scene immediately. Yeah. You're chased by the police. You can get caught. You probably have a gun. You have to exactly. have a gun. Exactly. You've got you've got to worry about them having a gun, shooting you, and, and in which case if you carry a gun, then it becomes a different issue when you get caught and prosecuted because many of the crimes that involve guns, that involve violence, injuries to victims, things of that nature have what we call enhancement allegations, which means that you could not only just be subjected to the crime itself, which oftentimes carry many, um, uh, which often carries many years attached to them, but you can also be subjected to these enhancement crimes, which could um, add years to your sentence based on things like whether you possessed a gun, whether you injured somebody, even what your prior criminal history is. If you've got two prior strikes, you know what the end of that story is going right, to look like. Right. So there's a lot of things that are involved when you get when you're doing committing crimes the old school method. Now you you fast forward to to kind of like the the now era, and you're dealing with a type of crime, identity theft which can be committed over the Internet. It can you be could done, be in your own kitchen, right? Exactly. It could be done anonymously, and your yield of dollar value is unlimited. You can do tens of thousands of dollars in small increments and never get caught. Use one profile or one, personal inform, uh, one person's information, and when you burn that person's information, you move on to the next person's information. And you just keep doing that, and you can just keep making thousands and thousands of dollars and no one ever knows and you know I, I do this presentation and my I do this presentation to law enforcement I said the, the best thing about being an identity thief one of the greatest um, values of being an identity thief is the property gets delivered to you right right there's no other type of crime where they deliver the property to you <laughs> Right. So, you know, that's that's the great thing about it is that you never see your victims. You're doing it anonymously over the Internet. You don't take the chance that some cop is going to chase you or, 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 or point a gun at you. You don't have to worry about enhancement allegations. You don't have to worry about the, the steep prison the steep prison exposures that come along with bank robberies or violent assaults or robberies or things of that nature. You don't have to worry about all that kind of stuff. And then you go into court and some judge may say, well, this seems to be, you know, a, a financial crime, a white-collar type crime. And, and, and that, too, in the minds of the, um, the thief, is an incentive. So that's yes. where, you know, everyone, including the prosecutors, have to come in and basically say, we're not going to make it an incentive anymore. We're going to make it so that, one, we're going to try and keep changing the legislature to keep going in our direction on making these crimes more um, or less profitable and make it easier for us to prosecute. But we also want to make sure that we're not letting these guys go off easy. If, if we think this is a prison offer, we're going to push hard for prison. Yes. And let me just give you an example, and maybe I can, if, I can, if I can just divert a little bit, um, how, how the legislature has responded to identity theft. Um, it, they've given us some pretty good expansions. There's two statutes that actually have been authored by our office um, that were – one was passed last year, and the other one is to go into effect um, in January of this year. But just to give you some idea of how the legislature has been favorable to identity theft, which is a growing – which I feel is a growing trend because no one, like I said, is sympathetic to this type of crime. Um, what we were finding, um, what we were finding in, um, uh, in in other prosecutions, is some of the more prolific identity thieves. What they were, what they would do is they would take a victim's information, and they would um, take that information and then use it um, in a particular scheme. So, for example, um, one person would grab a victim's um, credit card information, 
and basically open up an application, let's say, at Best Buy. Mm-hmm. If he knew that Best Buy does a, does a cursory check of this information or doesn't catch on that this is a fraudulent application until a week or two later, um, the suspect would be able to go in and immediately get credit and buy TV, exactly, all the good up stuff. To, up to the credit limit after filling out immediately the application. Right, the instant okay. credit stuff. You got it. So, okay, so now we've got a scheme that's in place. So what does the what does the smart RD thief do, uh, do? He goes to every Best Buy in the area, right. not just San Francisco. He'll go down to San Mateo. He'll go to east to the Oakland. He'll go north to Marin County. Why? Because he's not going to go to the same store and do the same thing over again. Someone might recognize him. Right. So he's going to now go to another. He's going to now go to another another store in the area. Well, this kind of activity, what would typically happen? under the older law um, back in 2008 was San Francisco only had jurisdiction to prosecute the crime in, in, in San Francisco, the Best Buy in San Francisco. Right. But the Best Buy in Oakland, that had to be handled by the Alameda DA's office. The Best Buy in San Mateo, that had to be handled by the San Mateo DA's office. The Best Buy in San Jose, that had to be handled by the Santa Clara DA's office. And, and so, the victim could be in Orange County. Absolutely. Or Florida. Absolutely, <laughs> absolutely. So what you have is you have this... This, you have this completely disconnected prosecution that you'd be lucky to find some coordination of a disposition of, of that type of effect. So the, the, the way the law was written at that, uh, prior to 2009, the way the law was written was that you can have jurisdiction, the county can have jurisdiction over the crime only if that same victim's information was used in Oakland if that same victim's information was used in San Mateo or in San Jose. Okay, well, this is a problem. Yeah. Because if you're the identity thief, if I burn my victim's name in San Francisco, you think I'm going to use his name in San, in, in, in San Jose or, or, or in Oakland? No, I move on to the next name. That's right. My, that's my technique. That's why I don't go after just one person's information. I don't commit this crime unless I've harvested a database that I can work with. Right. Once I've burned a name, and that's the term. Once you burn the name, you move on to your next name. Right. So the law doesn't make sense because when you're trying to gain multi-jurisdiction in different counties to be prosecuted in one county, the only connection that, that will let you do that is if the, um, if the victim's same information was used. And we were finding that that wasn't working because they were now being based by schemes. So what we did, we went to Sacramento, and we said we need to open up this jurisdictional um, provision so that it's no longer just when it's the same victim's information, but if it's the same type of scheme. Right. If it's the same scheme that happened in San Francisco, and it's the same scheme that was happening in Oakland, and the same scheme in San Jose, and the same scheme in San Mateo, San Francisco has the ability of prosecuting all of those jurisdictions. Right. And my complaint, which otherwise would only be maybe five or six felonies, could now be 30 or 40 felonies. And you could prosecute it in any of those places, right? Correct. So Correct. that was the beauty of it, that, exactly. that you could all coordinate together. And if you have a lot of stuff in your jurisdiction, you can have the other law enforcement agencies help you, and you can prosecute it wherever you want. Absolutely, and that gives us so much more leverage when we get in front of that judge because the judge sees the big picture. Yes. Oh, this isn't just an accident that happened in San Francisco. Right. Apparently, you're, you're pretty smart. You go to different counties for this, too. Right. And that gives us a lot more leverage when we want to ask for. And, and it's judicial economy. Absolutely. 
Absolutely. I mean, it, it saves money for everybody, and it really gets the guy because then you can put him away for a long time and maybe even get like a plea bargain that you get all that great information to see how they do it, too. Absolutely. And if you're a jury, you want to know the bigger picture. Yes. You want to say, okay, now this isn't just some accidental scheme. This is something where you're doing this very deliberately. Right. And that really helps us. This, you know, that, so that was one statute that um, was amended in 2009 that gave us um, expansive powers on jurisdiction. I issues. remember that. You guys did a great job on that one. Yeah. And the, the second one, which is to be, um, my understanding is to be in effect in January of 2011. This was actually argued by um, one of my um, partners here in, in the office. Um, in the restitution section of the penal code, um, and I'll read it to you. It's a fairly short um, section. But basically what was added was restitution can now also extend to expenses for a period of time reasonably necessary to make the victim whole for the cost of monitoring the credit report or for the cost of repairing the credit. Yes. Is now is now allowable for us in court to ask for is restitution. Yes. And for those of you who are listening and you don't really know what restitution is, the victim can, in the past, was able to go in and write to the court and provide documentation of out-of-pocket costs and ask for restitution, ask for that criminal to pay them. But, you know, the one thing that I have to say is most people who actually get an order of restitution don't always get it. I know for me, for my identity thief, you know, I think I got $40. <laughs> that was a lot. I, I mean, that. <laughs> yeah, I know. I mean, I got all of $40, but, you know, and I had a whole list of things that she had done and, and, and my out-of-pocket costs, et cetera, et cetera. And, um, but if they're criminals, unless they really got a great haul, I mean, how often is restitution? Do you really even get that? I mean, does the victim ever really get that? I mean, to be realistic, it's it's very difficult. It yeah. is very very difficult. And and I always and I always say to victims um, on this issue is when these people committed their crimes, trust me, they were not taking the money and putting it into an interest bearing escrow account <laughs> right. for when they get caught, they'll pay it back to you. They right. were not doing that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and it's true. And and so I tell people, people will say to me, "I want to sue that criminal." And I'm going, "What?" What? They're they're sitting in jail. You're going to sue them? What are they making? Ten cents an hour or whatever? Forget about them. You know, let's find out about the companies that actually facilitated this crime. Let's do something like that, or you know, just grin and bear it and move on. I mean, that's the way it is. Yeah, I mean, and 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 it's you know, it's 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 the reality of our it's the reality of the system. And and my job in this case is to try to get it is to try to, is to get definitely get the restitution order. But um, the real the reality is it's not always going to be um, they're not always going to have money to be able to pay the victims back, especially when they're stealing tens of thousands of dollars, um, and all they're going to be doing is sitting in jail and they're going to get out of custody as a felon and yes. don't expect them to be getting a you know a high paying job. No, not unless there's someone like Kevin Mitnick who's going to write some books and then become a security expert. Yeah, then exactly. then you might get it. You know exactly. You know there was another case that I thought might be interesting for some of your um, listeners. Okay. Um, because I think it, it touches on that point about. You can't really blame the victims, and you're absolutely right on that one because a lot of times your victims don't even have a choice on this. Well, you don't have a clue what's going on. Right. We had this one case that was in San Francisco, um, and it was a case where we were getting consumer complaints. We have a consumer fraud um, division in our office, and one of the one of the employees there was receiving a series of complaints from a couple of employees, former employees of a restaurant, and they were saying that their information was. Um, their information was being compromised um, 
by by the former store. And then now the store has been closed. Mm. But they were getting like credit cards as well as PG&E bills that were going back to that address. And so there was a little bit of investigation that was being done that was being done at the time. And at the same time that this was that we were looking into this at the same time Channel 7, the, one of the local news companies up here, one of their investigative reporters started looking into complaints from consumers that were having their credit cards charged um, by a restaurant that had already been closed down. Interesting. Which uh-huh. was the same restaurant that these former employees were um, were uh, were saying that there's PG&E bills, there's credit cards that are being opened up in our in our name. What it turned out was was interesting. So, anyways, we have this investigative reporter meets goes to the uh, goes to the store with one of the uh, victims, one of the consumers who has their credit card charged. Starts knocking on the door. The door is closed. Starts knocking on the door, and the owner opens up. And the investigative reporter, you know, as an investigative reporter, pushes his way in, <laughs> and on the counter are all these receipts, right. and the credit card machines are running. Oh, my goodness. You know, the light, the green lights are all lit up, you know, where you swipe the cards and all that kind of stuff. So he starts asking this guy, and he's, he's a much older um, Asian gentleman. He later became my defendant. But um, <laughs> asking, well, why are, the, why are these credit cards running? Your store's closed. What's going on here? The guy takes off. He literally runs out <laughs> the back of the store with, with the cameraman in tow. <laughs> he's running down the street. He runs for two to three blocks, I guess, before the cameraman just stopped break, break chase with the guy. <laughs> I'm like going, oh, great. Oh, no. Talk about consciousness of guilt, you know. So anyway, so we start looking into the case. Our office starts doing a, a full investigation on this case. And it turns out what this guy was doing. And this is, mind you, this is the owner. Yeah. This is the, what the owner was doing was at one point he was, he was open as a restaurant. And, in fact, I had a couple of coworkers that I actually ate there and that they, they really liked their, their, his pepper shrimp. <laughs> But they, of course, my coworkers paid cash, and I said, "Good for you." Yeah, they would have um, been anyways, one of those. So, yeah. that, yeah. so apparently, at one point, his, credit, his his restaurant was open, and so what he was doing was he was opening um, merchant credit accounts, and these were the accounts that, um, when you would process a Visa card, these merchant accounts would be the ones that would process it through the bank, and then they would they would approve the uh, the fund transfer. But these merchant accounts were the ones that were putting up the initial fund transfer. So these accounts with these merchant accounts were done in the name of former employees. Wow. That's why he was able to do it because he had all their social security and personal information. Right, because that's how he paid them on payroll. Exactly. And so he would set up the accounts under their names and then he would start charging the former customers credit cards using those fake accounts. And once those merchant accounts realized, hey, wait a minute, this is a fraudulent transaction. We can detect it because it's coming from this fraudulent number that we shut down earlier. He would open up a whole new account under another another name. And so he was able to do it at first with uh, reaping in thousands of dollars, tens of thousands of dollars, until the merchant company started recognizing what was going on. And then they gradually started putting in filters so that if a credit card was coming in from his phone number, that phone number would shut that that account was immediately shut down. So gradually, as he started opening up new accounts, he was only able to get uh, thousand you know a few thousand dollars because the merchant company was closing up the accounts immediately. But the now, point- why wouldn't the merchant? Now, see, this is the thing that always drives me crazy too. When these companies know about fraud, they don't always go to law enforcement and yeah. say, "Hey, let's work." They don't they want to be bothered. 
they yeah, just exactly they, they shut, shut it down. down you know, and, we'll, and, we'll take it a loss. You know, if and, they contact us, what, we'll, we'll give yeah, full cooperation. Yeah, that's what aggravates me because I've seen it over and over again. When I tell a company about, a, you know, a, a scheme that I know about from my own victims and I say, hey, we made a police report. Are you going to make a police report? Are you going to help and collaborate with law enforcement? And the answer I usually get is, you know what? What do you care? You don't. Your client isn't going to be responsible for it. We've already lost the money. We don't want to be bothered. And you know, that is so aggravating. Right. And what was what was interesting about the case that I was just talking to you about was there was two credit card machines working simultaneously side by side. We knew the merchant for one of those machines. We, to this day, don't know who the second machine was, was processing through. Wow. And we know that there was another crop. There was some information that my investigator brought to my attention that there was another merchant company that was involved that was processing it. And we had contacted them. And we never got a call back. You see? Now, if they were doing their job, and they're, they're really facilitating this fraud. They're letting it happen. Right. Because they're not working with you. Right. And, you know, that was, so that was, a, that was like, it was, you know, they were like, so what, 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 what tips do you give consumers? And I'm like, what tip can I give? This is a merchant. You can't get any worse than that. You know, I mean, like, you don't expect the merchant to steal your money. Maybe the busboy, maybe the waitress. But right. the actual owner? And you also don't expect your former boss to steal your identity, which I have to laugh because Linda Foley, who's uh, the co-director of the Identity Theft Resource Center, her former boss took her identity because he had access to all of it. Yeah, exactly. So it's crazy. But you know what? I can't believe this. We are just about out of time. This is unbelievable. So why don't we, I look at this, why don't you just tell us what words of wisdom do you have for consumers is just, you know, a last minute thing, because we're going to have to have you on again. You're just wonderful, Conrad. Thanks. Um, you know, what I would say to consumers, and, and I, I, I talk to consumers all the time, especially on cases where um, we're dealing with them as victims, is you've got to be mindful of practice tips on how to secure your your personal information, and obviously, Mari, you know your book is a wonderful is a wonderful resource to be able to learn just a lifestyle change on how to protect your personal information. Yeah. This is information that once it's compromised, and this is a warning that I give all consumers: once your information is compromised and you're not sure how it was compromised, for example, you see a charge in your credit card, you now run the risk that your information is floating out in cyberspace. It could be floating out anywhere, cyberspace being the most prolific and most dangerous uh, source that your information should be floating around. That information can be recycled at any time. And when you think you've done your credit report monitoring for six months or three years or whenever, it could be right after that is when someone pulls it down off the internet and says, here's an information that hasn't been used in a while, let me use it. And that's when it can be dangerous. So you have to practice a lifestyle change of protecting your information, whether it means um, uh, putting fraud alerts on your account, freezing your credit reports, whether it means not using credit cards and being strict to an, uh, uh, an ATM card, um, you've got to be able to be protective of that because once your information goes out, that is the that is the only personal information that you have. Well, once- we are going to have to go, Conrad. You are so wonderful, and we thank you so much for all the great work you're doing, and we will have you back again, okay? Okay. Okay. You've been listening to KUCI. 88.9 FM Irvine and KUCI.org on the net. I'm Mari Frank, the host of Privacy Piracy. Join us every Monday morning from 8 to 9 a.m. right here on KUCI and visit our website at KUCI.org slash Privacy Piracy. See our upcoming guests. Write us emails about what's important to you in the information age. Thanks. Stay private. 
The opinions and views expressed in this program do not reflect those of KUCI, its management, or the UC Board of Regents.